Gemays, great is the Lord. Amen? If you've got your Bibles with you, open up to John, the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 1. We've been moving verse by verse through this incredible Gospel, and we've just moved out of the prologue, or the introduction, into the first part of the narrative that we'll be looking at this morning. And so if you're taking notes, I've got it there for you uh, in your Bible, or in your bulletin, rather. It's, uh, the title of the sermon is, The Forerunner of Christ. The Forerunner of Christ, John chapter 1 verses 19 through 28. And so why don't we read this, and then we'll dive right into our time together in the Word this morning. Here's what the Apostle John writes about John the Baptist. He writes this, And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then are you, Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to sing in our hearts, Great is the Lord, to that beautiful melody melody just played. Thank you for the reading of the Word of God that reminds us that we're here to, uh, to learn from the writing of the Apostle John about the testimony of John the Baptist. And so as we consider what it means to be a forerunner, and as we consider the prophet John the Baptist and what he taught, I pray that we would take it to heart today. We would learn lessons that you want us to learn today so we can live it out in our own lives, that we could be better and more faithful witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, the concept of being a forerunner is really not that hard to grasp, right? Being a forerunner means that you're introducing something that's to come. Or a forerunner could be a person or a thing that precedes the coming or development of someone or something else. Let me use it in a couple of different ways. Um, Like an early winter storm is a forerunner of a miserably cold and stormy winter. Or we could say the Braxton Hicks contractions that the pregnant mom is experiencing are only a forerunner of the real pain that's going to come once labor commences. Those three moms can testify about that this week, I bet, right? Or how about the band that opened at Saturday's uh, concert was just a forerunner to the feature presentation that would come later that evening. The Ark of the Covenant was a forerunner to the people of Israel. They lined up to cross the Jordan River and enter into the promised land. So we could also define a forerunner as a person sent before to announce or prepare the way for another. Like the White House press secretary approached the podium to answer some initial questions as the forerunner to the president, who was to also come and take further questions a little later. Or the forerunner came to the platform to prepare the crowd for the king's formal arrival. Or in our case this morning, John the Baptist was sent as the forerunner to prepare the way for Christ. John was here to introduce the world to the public ministry and to the person of Jesus Christ. And we read about his role in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. Just listen. Isaiah writes this, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
And so we understand from that prophecy of Isaiah that it's making way for the king. That when a king would travel with his entourage, you would take people who would go out before the king, forerunners, and they would prepare the way to make sure the road was straight. If the road was too bumpy, they would take away some of the bumps. If the road had holes in it, they would fill it in. Whatever they did, they made sure it was prepared so that when the king came, he could travel down that road without having to mess with a whole lot of of different things that would be happening on that path. That's exactly what John the Baptist does as he's preparing the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, in some ways, the Lord Jesus needs no introduction. He is God in the flesh. But in other ways, it had been prophesied and fulfilling prophecy would be John the Baptist would come as his forerunner. And so as we look at verses 19 through 28 this morning, we're going to examine five questions that are issued from the Jews to John the Baptist to try to understand exactly who he was and who it is that he's introducing. So five questions, again, asked directly to John the Baptist. Here's the first one, and again, it's all in your notes there, but they ask the question, who are you? Who are you? And the first answer to that would be, there. the first blank, if you are taking notes, would be John is the one who was sent from God. Notice in verse 19, again, we read, and this is the testimony of of John. And so we're learning here that this is a, a, a testimony from John the Apostle giving a shout out to John the Baptist about exactly who he is. And what we've learned so far, if you look up at verse 6, is we learn John the Baptist is a man sent from God. He's not God as opposed to Christ, who was in the beginning, who was God. John was sent from God. And verse 7 says that he came as a witness to bear a witness about the light. I told you sometimes we call him John the Baptist. It would be just as appropriate to say John the witness because he's coming as a witness to talk about the light. Verse 8 says he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And then if you skip down to verse 15, it says John bore witness about him and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And last time we were together, we talked about how John the Baptist was born six months before Jesus. His ministry began six months or more before Jesus. And so while John the Baptist came first, he says Christ outranks him. Christ comes before him because John the Baptist is human. Christ is eternal in the sense from eternity past. And so what we have here in chapter one is these people are coming to ask John the Baptist, who are you? And they should have known that there was a Levite priest by the name of Zechariah who was married to Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments of the Lord. And they were a little older. And the Bible says that Elizabeth was barren. And in Luke chapter 1, it goes on to talk about how while Zechariah was burning incense in the temple, the angel Gabriel appeared and told him that their prayers had been answered and that Elizabeth would have a son and they were to call his name John. Remember that story? And then Zechariah wasn't able to speak until he came out of the temple. The baby was born. What name are you going to give him? They're arguing about it. He said, no, his name is John. And then his mouth was opened up and he was able to give testimony to the Lord. And that whole passage, Luke 1.15, says this about the Baptist. It says, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So we learn that John the Baptist is to take the Nazarite vow, or at least a part of that vow, and that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so then we read a little bit about how Elizabeth uh, interacts with Mary, the mother of Jesus. You might remember Mary, who was with child, came to visit Elizabeth in Luke 139. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, into a town uh, in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So these are all a little bit of a biographical background of what we've already looked at about John the Baptist. In fact, if you were to look in just six verses that summarize his whole ministry, it would be Matthew 3. Look at it with me, if you will. Matthew 3, 1 through 6. Again, we're looking at the bio of John the Baptist. This would probably sum it up as good as any concise way as we can this morning. John, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. In those days, John the Baptist came in the wilderness of Judea. Uh, he came uh, preaching. He came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And what was his message? Repent, right? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust. Everybody say, yum, yum. Right? His food was locust and honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now all of this that we've read this morning about John the Baptist should have been known by the Jews. All of this should have been known by the Levites. I mean, they're Levites. Zechariah, John's dad, was a Levite. They should have known about Gabriel's prophecy. They should have known that John couldn't speak until he said his name is John, as he wrote it out on that tablet. They should have known that John the Baptist is fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy, and yet they don't. They are blinded, whether it be their own sin or the sovereignty of God. They were not able to see John the Baptist for who he was, and so they're coming to him to ask the question, who are you? Now, the next subpoint says this, the Jews are the ones who came, who Christ came to save. Because we're reading here in verse 19, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And so it's the Jews that are trying to kind of interrogate John the Baptist. And this phrase, the Jews, appears 75 times in the gospel. I'm just taking a moment because the Jews comes up 75 times And typically, when it says the Jews, it's in a negative connotation, just like it is in this context. It's like, well, the Jews are sending out the Levites and sending out the priests to ask John, who are you? But sometimes it's used in the Gospel of John as a positive connotation. Like in chapter 4, when Jesus is talking to the woman in Samaria, he talks about how salvation comes from the Jews. So it could be in a negative connotation or in a positive connotation. One thing I want to say for sure is that the the Bible is not anti-Semitic. Nowhere in the Bible is is God against the Jews. In fact, they are His chosen people. He loves the Jews. We're, We're called to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So as Christians today, neither are we to be anti-Semitic. I remember when Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, came out, there was all kind of discussion about, you know, who killed Jesus. And a lot of people were saying, well, Mel Gibson, because he has shown some signs of anti-Semitism, was anti-Semitic because he depicts in the movie that the Jews are the ones who turned Jesus in. So the discussion were, were, did the Jews kill Jesus? Did, uh, did, Did the Romans kill Jesus? And my answer is, no, actually, God killed Jesus. God did it. It pleased the Father to crush his son. And yes, he used and ordained even the turning in from the Jews to the Romans to carry out that crucifixion. But at no point should we say that the Bible is anti-Semitic. The Bible is not racist. The Bible is not sexist. The Bible is not backwards. The Bible does not promote bigotry. The Bible is anti-sin. And the Bible is anti-any teaching that goes against the gospel of Christ. And so these Jews send out these priests which are represented by the Sanhedrin and the Levites who were supposed to be guarding the correctness of temple worship. And they're getting a little bit afraid because all of a sudden John the Baptist is becoming very popular. People are leaving Jerusalem, leaving the temple, going out to hear his message, his prophecy, and becoming a part of his baptism. And so they're obviously very concerned about this. So they send a delegation out to him to see what's going on. It's the Jews, though. We've got to realize this is the same people God came to save, right? We just read in John 1, 12, but uh, he, he came to his own. Verse 11, rather. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And so now that they have rejected Jesus, they send this delegation to ask John the Baptist who are you? And notice in your next blank, we read this, John confesses he is not the Christ. So they ask the question, who are you? Verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now there were some people who were a little confused whether or not John might be the Messiah. In fact, Luke 3.15 says it this way, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. So while in this particular verse it doesn't phrase, are you the Christ? It just says, who are you? 
And notice he's like, I'm not Jesus, I'm not the Christ, I'm not the Messiah. You might say, well, why did he feel obligated to answer that way? And the question would be, the answer would be that in some of the other synoptics, they were already posing the question, are you the Christ? And in Luke 3.15 that we just read, they were questioning in their hearts whether or not John might be the Christ. And so he wants to make it abundantly clear that he's not the Christ. And so the text says in verse 20, he confessed. And in this context, it means to commit oneself to. It means to commit to do something for someone. That word confess means to promise or to assure. And the fact is, he confessed and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. You could tell in verse 20, there's great emphasis here. There's even a double negative given for emphasis. He says twice he didn't confess it. In the middle, he does not deny it, right? He's trying to say, look, there's no um, reason that you should think that I'm the Christ. I am not the Messiah. I am not the anointed one. And so John makes it crystal clear that he is not Jesus. Now, he could have used this to his advantage, right? He could have said something like, hey, you know what? I'm really close to Christ. He's my cousin. We, we hung out together as kids. Uh, he, could have, he could have somehow claimed to be a lesser Christ, a false Christ, a demigod, but he did not. He did not try to take hold of that popularity or the attention he was getting. Instead, he was just adamant about the fact that he was not the Christ. And so the first question to John the Baptist, who are you? A clear answer is given, I am not Christ. Second question, they ask him then in verse 21, and they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Okay, so if you're not Christ, are you Elijah? Why Elijah? Why would they ask him, are you Elijah? Well, there in your notes, you see four reasons why the Jews thought John the Baptist might be Elijah. Here's at least four reasons why uh, this was actually a pretty good guess that maybe he's John, John the Baptist is Elijah. Number one, Elijah never died, but was taken up into the fiery chariot. Remember the story? Second Kings, Elijah and Elisha are walking out, and Elisha is following Elisha, and he wants to stick with him and stay with him all the way to the very end. And Second Kings 2.11 says, and, they were, and as they still went on and talked, Behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So that's the story of swing low, sweet chariot, right? So that's the story of nobody ever saw his body after that point. He was taken up into heaven, and Elisha was left to carry on his earthly ministry. And the school of the prophets saw all this happen, and they demanded that Elisha helped them search for the body of Elijah for three days. And so he did. He took 50 guys. They looked for the body of Elisha, excuse me, of Elijah for three days, and they could never find him. Okay? So one reason that the Jews may think that this is Elijah is because he was taken up by a chariot, and maybe he's back. Okay? Second reason the Jews thought John the Baptist might have been Elijah. Number two, Elijah also dressed like John the Baptist. Right? We talked just a moment ago how John the Baptist wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. So 2 Kings 1.8 tells us about the fashion of Elijah. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist, and he was called Elisha, Elijah excuse me, the Tishbite. So we understand they dressed similarly. Right? They wore a garment of hair. They had a leather belt around their waist, and so this could be another reason why they think John the Baptist is reminding them of Elijah. Number three, third reason, Elijah confronted King Ahab. So Elijah confronted King Ahab, just like John the Baptist is going to confront Herod. In fact, in 1 Kings 18, 17 through 19, we read, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. And your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Elijah was like, no joke. He was like in the face of Ahab saying, look, 
I'm not the trouble of Israel. You are, because you're worshiping false gods. In fact, I want you to get all the prophets of Baal, all the prophets of Asherah, bring them to Mount Carmel, and we'll let God answer who he's supporting. And so there's a very bold confrontation of Ahab. And this is the same thing that John the Baptist did, right? In a bold way, he confronted King Herod, not King Herod the Great, for he had already died, but he split his kingdom to four King Herods, and one of those brothers stole his other brother's wife. And so what happens is John the Baptist confronts King Herod, Mark 6, 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And so he gets put into jail, and later he gets his head chopped off. All right? So both of these prophets were pretty loud, pretty bold, in confronting the king and pointing out their sin. Fourth reason why, and the most obvious reason why the priest and the Levites thought the Baptist might be Elijah was this. Number four, Elijah will come before the day of the Lord. Now turn and look at this one with me, if you will. Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament. So go to Matthew and then go one, two, three pages to the left. All right, in Malachi chapter 3, Malachi chapter 3, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So we believe that to be a reference to John the Baptist. He's sending his messenger who will prepare the way. It even becomes more clear in chapter 4, verse 5, where we read chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so these Jews obviously realized there was a prophecy given about somebody here, namely John the Baptist, right, or a prophet that is like Elijah. So this is what they're thinking. Maybe this is the Elijah prophet that, uh, that John the Baptist is this Elijah guy. And so this is the question that comes to him. And so we see these four legitimate reasons why the Jews would ask John the Baptist if he was Elijah or not, right? Now, let me give you four answers to, these, to this question. Four answers. Number one, and the most simplest, if you just need a real simple answer, he says, I am not. Either he's asked point blank, are you Elijah? He says, no, I am not. John 1, 21. And so when he says, I am not, I don't think he could be more clear than that, right? John the Baptist stated emphatically that he was not the Christ. Now he states emphatically that he is not Elijah. And I believe John the Baptist is answering this question as literally as he's able to. In other words, he's saying, I am not Elijah brought back to life. I am not Elijah reincarnated. There's no such thing as reincarnation. I am not Elijah resurrected. I'm just not him. No, I am not Elijah. That's one way we could answer that question, and you would be right if you answer it that way, because that's how John the Baptist answers the question. But there's some other verses in the Bible that we got to look at because it can get a little complicated, right? So number two, maybe this would be a better answer. John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. So he's not Elijah, but he does come in the spirit and the power of Elijah, according to the angel Gabriel that I read to you earlier in Luke 1.17, as Gabriel is talking to Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, he says to him, and he will go out before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. So while John the Baptist is right saying, I'm not him, Gabriel was also right saying John the Baptist did come in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. With me? All right, it gets more complicated. All right, number three, Elijah has already come. Now Jesus weighs in, and in Matthew chapter 17, you'll need to turn there, Matthew 17, verses 10 through 13, we also read what Jesus says about John the Baptist. And this is after Jesus came down uh, from the Mount of Transfiguration. He had spent time up there with Peter, James, and John. And also, if you remember, Moses and Elijah showed up there on the mount. And so they're discussing all of this. And in Matthew chapter 17, verse 10, the disciples asked him, the disciples asking Christ, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Verse 11, he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So just to be clear, Jesus does say Elijah does come and that Elijah has already come. It also becomes abundantly clear that he's talking here of John the Baptist because that's the way that the disciples understood Jesus' answer to that question. And they're saying that basically 
the people did to John the Baptist, whatever they wanted, they killed him. They're going to do the same to the Son of Man. They're going to do whatever they want to him. They're going to kill Jesus. And so just like that, that's the answer that Christ gives is that John the Baptist or Elijah already has come referring to John the Baptist. Okay, let me give you one more and then I'll try to wrap it up. A fourth way to think of the answer would be this. Number four, if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah. If you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah. And again, this comes again, a direct quote from Christ, Matthew 11. So turn now to Matthew 11, verses 11 through 14. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Close quote. So what is Christ saying? If you're willing to accept it, I think Christ is saying this. That if Israel as a whole had been willing to accept John the Baptist's message of repentance... And if the Jews had been willing to accept Jesus as the Son of God, and if the Jews did not reject John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, then Jesus would have ushered in the kingdom in its entirety at that moment. In other words, at that moment, if they would have accepted John the Baptist, then Jesus said, bam, that's the testimony fulfilled. The millennial kingdom is here. We are going to get this thing going, and all the Old Testament prophecies about the millennial kingdom would be immediately fulfilled in the kingdom that would have been upon them. But, since they were not willing to accept it, there's a parenthesis of God's program with Israel that he then says, you know what, I'm going to come back to this, but for now, that didn't fully fulfill the prophecy because you didn't accept John the Baptist's message. And then we see the new covenant issued in where now whether you're a Jew or a Gentile alike, the message of repentance is for all people who would repent and believe in Christ. And there's an emphasis in the New Testament, not on ethnic Israel, but on the church, those who are in Christ. In fact, if you go back and look at that Malachi passage where it was prophesied that Elijah must first come, I would say to you that that passage is talking about Christ's second advent not his first advent. And the reason I'm saying that is because Malachi 4 or 5 says, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now, we understand the great and awesome day of the Lord. It can also be translated the great and terrible day of the Lord because it's a reference to the end of the tribulation when Christ comes back to judge those who did not receive him as Lord. I'm talking about the end of the tribulation. And so the idea in Malachi 4, 6, the next verse says that lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So I'm saying the Malachi passage, I don't believe was fulfilled fully by John the Baptist at the first advent of Christ, but will be fulfilled fully at the second advent of Christ when he comes back for the second coming. And I'm getting that from Revelation chapter 11, verse 3. As you know, we talk about the two prophets at the wailing wall, which show up in the tribulation, and he says to these two witnesses, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So these two witnesses, one of them is a John the Baptist, Elijah-like character, and the other one is like Moses, because this is what he says about these two witnesses. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So Moses represents the law, Elijah represents the prophets, and in the end, there's, a, there's this appearance of these two witnesses, Revelation 11:5. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Who does that remind you of? Elijah on Mount Carmel, right? When the fire came down from heaven and consumed the foes of, of the, the prophets of Baal. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to die. The next verse says, they have the power to shut up the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. Who prayed and it didn't rain for three years? Elijah. Who prayed and then it started raining? Elijah. And then we see Moses and they have power to overtake the waters and turn them into blood. So who turned water into blood? 
Moses and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. Again, Moses, as often as they desire. So what I'm saying is, in the end, in the tribulation, two prophets show up at the wailing wall. One of them is an Elijah-like prophet. One of them is a Moses-like prophet. And so backing all the way up now to this context, so is Elijah, uh, is John the Baptist Elijah or not? I would say no, not literally. But John the Baptist is a type of Elijah, and he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But since the Jews rejected his message, there is another Elijah-like prophet that will come at the second coming. So I know it sounds complicated, but if you just want to stick with it and be super easy, is John the Baptist Elijah? Just say no. He's not. But there's other, if somebody says, well, what about this? What about this? Just say, well, he came like Elijah, but he wasn't Elijah. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah, but he's not. But if Israel would have repented, he would have been, but they didn't repent, so he's not. And oh, by the way, there's two more prophets at the end that, that still have to be part of that fulfillment of the Malachi passage. All right? And if you want to talk to me about it later, you can't. All right? Let's move on to the next question. All right? Number three, are you the prophet? So they asked the question, are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? There in verse 21, are you the prophet? He answered no. This question, next blank, came from the prophecy of Moses. All right? Moses had prophesied back in Deuteronomy 18, 15, that there would be one who would come after him that they were to listen to. The Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me. From among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. So Moses is clearly saying, there's another prophet, another Jew coming after me, and he's the prophet with a capital P, and it's him you better listen to. This is, I'm the little mediator, he's going to be the big mediator. I'm the little prophet, he's going to be a prophet, priest, and king. There's this guy that you need to make sure you listen to. In fact, it says, Deuteronomy 18, 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you among the, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command them. And so this prophecy was to be fulfilled by Christ, not by John the Baptist. But some people were confused. Next blank. This question had no clear answer in first century Judaism, and that's evidenced by those two references of John 6.14 and John 7.40. There's a lot of discussion whether or not that prophecy will be fulfilled by the Messiah or whether that prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 will be fulfilled by another. And so that's part of why they're asking John the Baptist, well, are you this prophet Moses is talking about? Because we're not sure if that prophecy is supposed to apply to the Messiah or to a forerunner like you. Right? The answer to the question, next blank, this question has a clear answer from Peter and Stephen. Peter and Stephen make it abundantly clear that the Mosaic prophecy of Deuteronomy 18.15 is to be fulfilled by Christ, not by John the Baptist. And they say that twice, Acts 3.22 and again in Acts 7.37, where Peter in Acts 3.22 says, Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers, and you shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. So in that context, Peter's making it abundantly clear that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Mosaic prophecy. Again, we see it in uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 37, as Stephen is giving his martyr speech before he dies, and he says, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And so they're both making it abundantly clear that that is to be applied to Christ, not applied to John the Baptist. All right? Next blank says this, this question is directly answered by John the Baptist as well. Right? It's directly answered by John the Baptist. Are you the prophet? Again, he answers what? No. Okay? He answered no. Well, at this point, you can start to feel the tension of the delegation. They're frustrated that they're not getting any answers about who the Baptist is. And so this leads us to our fourth question that they ask him. Number four, what do you say about yourself? Next blank. The Jews are trying to intimidate John the Baptist. So at this point in verse 22, so they say to him, well, who are you? We need an answer to give to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And at this point, again, they're putting pressure on him. They're like, we got to give an answer to the Pharisees who sent us. Verse 24, they've been sent out by the Pharisees. And so these people are blind and they are arrogant. And instead of listening to what John the Baptist was saying, they continue to accuse him according to their own skewed view of fulfillment of prophecy. 
And so this is the, the answer, B, the next blank, the Jews missed the humility of John the Baptist. I don't know if they really heard what he said. This is what he says. They asked him, who are you? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now notice what John the Baptist does. He does not claim to be a great man. He does not claim to be a great person. He doesn't say, well, I was the cousin of Jesus and I was filled with the Holy Spirit in my mother's womb. In fact, my mama got filled with the Holy Ghost while I was still in her tummy. I mean, he could have said all kinds of stuff that had been like, wow, this guy has a huge pedigree and great credentials. But he doesn't say any of that stuff. He simply says, I'm a voice. I'm a voice. He simply quotes scripture to them. He simply just says, well, I'm who Isaiah said in Isaiah 43 when he says that he's the voice, again, of, of him who would cry out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He is the voice crying out. And this word crying out means to use one's voice at a high volume, to call or to shout. And John the Baptist is not crying out his message. He's crying out the message of Christ. He's not exalting his agenda. He's exalting the agenda of Christ. He's not clearing the way for his ministry. No, he's clearing the way for Christ's ministry. Notice where he's calling out from. He's calling out from the wilderness. He's not a part of the establishment. The establishment was broken. The establishment needed a reformation. The establishment needed a complete overhaul. So he's not in Jerusalem, even though he was the son of a Levite priest. He's out in the wilderness, and he's calling out, and he's crying out to them, make way for the Lord. Listen to what A.W. Pink writes on this. He writes this, quote, Why then did John cry not in the temple? Why? Because Jehovah was no more there in the temple. Judaism was but a hollow shell. Outward form there was, but no life within. It was a nation of legalists, Pharisee-ridden, who neither manifested Abraham's faith nor produced his works. That is why John came. God would not own the self-righteous formalism of the Jews. Therefore, the one sent of God appeared outside the religious system and the circles of the day. And so we're understanding John needed to be out in the wilderness. He didn't need to be a part of the establishment. He needed to be out there. He's going to be out there confronting the Pharisees who are in the holy place in Jerusalem. And so John is not seeking to display himself. He is the voice simply heard but not seen. His work is to get men to listen to his God-given message in order that they might behold the Lamb. And so we need to take a note, if we can, from John the Baptist here. There's great humility. He's not trying to line up with anything except Jesus in the Scripture. You know, all the commentaries on this part say, well, it would serve well the preacher today to learn from John the Baptist that it's not about him and his ministry, but it's about Christ and his gospel. We would be well served today to understand that whatever ministry you have, I know that I'm the one preaching today, and so I need to take that to heart, but each one of us need to take that to heart. Whether you serve up here on this podium in our worship team, it'd be so easy, right, when the lights come on and the amps are up and the mic's right in your face, to sing out and be like, oh, look at me, I'm God's gift of worship. All right? It'd be your temptation as you lead the children at Kids Fest to be like, man, I played the game with the kids and they love me. They like remember my name, which is saying a lot about kids, all right? And you can start to think it's all about your small group. Oh, man, we had a Christmas party at our house. <laughs> 50 people showed up. How many did you have at yours? Right? It'd be so easy for us to start to forget and lose, lose sight of the fact you're just a voice. That's all you are. You're a voice. And when people ask you what you're doing or why you're doing, maybe the better answer would just give them Scripture. Just say, I'm a nobody. I got nothing. I'm a slave to Christ. It's all about Him. It's all about His glory. And John the Baptist had every opportunity to toot his own horn, and he never did. He simply said, I'm a voice crying out in the wilderness. Humility like this is of great value in God's kingdom. We need to be a humble people. We need to heed the challenge of Matthew Henry, the great Puritan who wrote on this verse, quote, those speak best for Christ that say the least about themselves. 
whose own works praise them, not their own lips. Right? We need to be a, a humble people. We need to take, a, again, a page out of John the Baptist's book and just look at this humility, which the Pharisees, I'm not sure if they're seeing it. The Apostle Paul had the same mindset when he said, I'm the very least of all the saints. I'm the chief of sinners. And John the Baptist continues to show this humility when he says, look down at verse 27. He says, look, there's one coming after me the strap of whose sandal I am not even worthy to untie. You understand that if a Jewish teacher had a pupil, a student, that the student could never be commanded to untie his sandal. That, that, that was to be reserved for the lowliest of the lowest slave. So John the Baptist is like, I'm not even worthy to be that. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a son of a Levite. Right? I, I have a ministry. But I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of Jesus's sandal. What humility this is. It's almost as if John the Baptist was familiar with Christ's teaching when he says in Luke 17, 10, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Remember that passage? It's like, look, when your life is done, and people are saying, hey, you know, they're, they're praising you and maybe a eulogy is given about you and all that you've done. Of course, the eulogy is given after you're dead, right? But the idea is they're praising you. Would you be able to say, you know what? I'm just an unworthy servant. All I've done is my... Don't praise me. All I've done is my duty. I'm an unworthy servant to even be in the kingdom of God. I'm just a voice crying out in the wilderness. I'm an unworthy servant. John the Baptist got that. Do you? Do you really see yourself as an unworthy servant in your, in your life, in your ministry, as a husband, as a wife, as a kid, as a teenager, as a college student? Or are you starting to think, well, wait a second, I'm the head of this house. It's about me. Well, wait a second, I'm the mama in this house, and if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, so you better do what mama says, right? I mean, we can start to exercise too much manipulative things in our conversation and how we mix with one another of just saying, you know what, I got nothing. I am a nobody. I am a worthless slave. It's not about me. It's about Christ. Just look to Christ. If someone were to ask, well, why is your church successful? We, we ought to say, well, look to Christ. Right? We're not going to say, oh, well, it's our Sunday school curriculum and our small group ministry and we do this, that, and the other and this, why. You know, forget all that. If people were to come and ask us, well, who are you and why, why are you? It's, we're just a voice. We're a voice calling out, make straight the way of the Lord, prepare your hearts for the Lord Jesus. We would do well to learn about the humility of John the Baptist. And then one final question that's given to him, well, why are you baptizing? I mean, obviously the question is, well, if you're not Christ and you're not the prophet and you're not Elijah, why are you doing what you're doing? So they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know. Your next blank, again, with what authority are you baptizing? You have to understand the Jews were pretty upset about this. They're used to Gentiles being baptized as proselytes coming into the covenant community. That's what baptism is about. Yes, there was ritual baptism, cleansing baptism, being baptized to ascend uh, the temple, but there was also you're outside of the covenant of promise, and once you get baptized, you come into the covenant of promise. So why are you baptizing people, John the Baptist? Why are you baptizing people who are already Jewish? They don't need to be baptized, but you're baptizing them. Who gave you that authority? Because really what you're saying is our system is broken. What you're saying is Jews need to get baptized again? And the Baptist is saying, look, guys, that's exactly what I'm saying, but I'm only doing it with water. But, the, but don't miss the point. It's not about me. There's one coming after me. In fact, there's one already here. He's in your midst. You don't even know him. He's already here. He's in your midst. And so we have to understand that these Pharisees truly were whitewashed tombs. And what they needed to, was to be purified with the waters of regeneration, right? John was baptizing with water, but there would be one after him who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And that's why he says, your next blank, among you stands one who you do not know. He's right here. Right? Look to him, John is saying. John is saying, look, this is just a baptism of water, symbolizing repentance from legalism and a soft heart ready to hear the full gospel. But among you stands one who you don't know. 
And he exposes Israel's condition. How this statement indicts the Jewish spiritual ignorance. And yet the same is true today. Among evangelicals, so-called Christians, many claim Christ and yet have never heard his message. In this so-called Christian land, many would say they love Christ, but it's a Christ of their own making. And what they really love is spiritual darkness. And oh, the spiritual blindness of the natural man. Here is Jesus, the fulfillment of prophecy, the love of God on display, the redeemer of souls, and yet they did not know him. This is what J.C. Ryle writes on this, quote, It is a solemn thought that John the Baptist's words in this place apply strictly to thousands in the present day. Christ is still standing among many who neither see nor know nor believe. Christ is passing by many a parish and many a congregation, and the vast majority have neither an eye to see him nor an ear to hear him. The spirit of slumber seems to have been poured out upon them. Money and pleasure and the world they know, but they know not Christ. The kingdom of God is close to them, but they sleep. Salvation is within their reach, but they sleep. Mercy, grace, peace, heaven, eternal life are so nigh that they might touch them, and yet they sleep. Christ standeth among them, and they know him not. It would serve us well to ask that question, do you know Christ today? Do you know Christ? It's not about John the Baptist, it's about Christ. And yet, we as a church, so many times, line up with certain movements in evangelicalism. Can I just say, we don't really line up with evangelicals today. We line up with Christ. Because in the movement of evangelicalism, it is a mixed bag of people who profess Christ and people who don't. Who People who say you can be saved without repentance and people who don't. And so as the world goes further and further, we're really, in one sense, becoming more and more like John the Baptist outside of the establishment. And we're crying out to say, look, it's all about Christ. We need to be prepared to be that voice crying, calling out, no, 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 you got it wrong. Christ is about being the only Savior, the Son of God. Repentance and belief in Him, that's the only way you can be saved. Hell is real. Repentance is a must. You must believe in Jesus by faith alone. And if we're not ready to hang on to those truths, what I'm saying is don't hold on to the establishment. Look, we're not about Shepherd's Conference. We're not about ACBC. We're not about the Gospel Coalition. We're not about Together for the Gospel. We're about the Gospel. Because there could be groups of people that are part of that, those movements, which we respect and appreciate. But what if one day they, there's a group in there and they just kind of get off? We've got to be willing to get out of the establishment and get into the Bible alone. Now, I'm not saying run headlong, avoid all denominations and all churches, all right? Once you're saved by the gospel, you're immediately in the universal church. I believe you should be a part of a local church that affirms the gospel, and that's what you need to be about. But don't get too caught up into denominationalism or into claiming these higher forms of the establishment, because at some point they're going to all get off, but Christ will never get off. The Bible will never lead you astray. When people ask you what you're about, quote Christ, quote the Bible, quote Scripture, be the voice in the wilderness. Don't hold on to anything else. And this last verse, verse 28, may seem like it's misplaced, but it says, this took place in Bethany across the Jordan. You may think, well, what's that about? Well, he's just simply emphasizing it's not the Bethany on this side of the Jordan, close to Jerusalem. It was about a half a mile from Jerusalem where, where, where um, Lazarus lived and Mary and Martha lived. Now, this is a different Bethany across the Jordan, out in the wilderness. We don't know exactly where its geographical location is, but we know it's not close to Jerusalem. It's a little bit further out there in the wilderness. So it just continues to synthesize this text, saying that it is a voice out in the wilderness calling out. And so we need to be reminded that it may be that you and I are going to be out in the wilderness calling out to people to be faithful to the Word of God and to be faithful to Christ. And as we end this morning, there's just a couple of questions there. Number one, what questions do you have today about various teachers or ministries? I mean, in some ways, we could say this is healthy for them to come ask John the Baptist, who are you? Because if John the Baptist is a false prophet, they need to know that. 
And I would say in the same way, we need to be asking questions about the popular leaders in evangelicalism today. Somebody's really popular, and they're getting all kinds of people running out to them. You better know who they are. And you better start asking questions. Are they preaching Christ and Him crucified? Number two, are you a voice crying out in the wilderness? I'm hoping that you'll identify more with just the simple gospel and Jesus Christ than any other establishment, which may mean that you need to prepare to be a voice that's on the fringe in the wilderness, and you may not necessarily be a part of the mainstream evangelicalism. Number three, do you consider yourself worthy to untie the sandal of Jesus? Because if you do, you're missing the humility of John the Baptist. Right? We're not worthy to untie. He says, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandal of my Lord. I hope that we as a church could have that kind of humility. When you're asked to do something, when you're serving in a local ministry, when you're involved in something, instead of thinking, well, I wanted a more, you know, higher role to serve, you would just say, oh, I'm not, oh, you want me to pass out bulletins? I'm not worthy to do that. Let me scrub the feet of Jesus, right? That's the heart and the mindset that we need to have as a church. That's the mindset of John the Baptist, is that our mindset as we look at him as being the forerunner of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the reminder this morning, looking at John the Baptist and just looking at his humility and the fulfillment of, of prophecy and the, the way he pointed clearly to Christ. God, thank you that he didn't try to take any credit for his own. He didn't cl claim to be any part of the prophet or of Elijah or of uh, being uh, the Messiah, but rather he just said, I'm a voice crying out in the wilderness. And I pray, God, that we would cry out. God, there's too many of us that are too shy, too quiet. We need to cry out in the wilderness of this world that we live in, preparing the way for the Lord, pointing to Christ. And yet we're so comforted by the fact that only Jesus can save. Only Jesus can convert lost souls. So it's not our job to save people. We just want to cry out, Jesus, look to Christ, be saved, repent of our sins, come to him who alone is able to baptize us with the Holy Spirit through regeneration and with fire, the judgment of those who don't bow the knee to Christ. And so today, God, help us to be faithful forerunners. Help us to learn from this text how we can point people to Christ and we ourselves could be caught up in the glory and the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we behold the Lamb of God today, Jesus, who takes away the sins of the world. We'll forever praise you, God. We want to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow you. May it not be about us, our church, our ministry. May it all be about Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.